Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Strange New Worlds edition, and I'm your host, Michael. And at the helm, navigating through asteroids and pirates, is Ensign David Sabal. Hello. Hello, everybody. So are we safe from pirates? Yes, for now. Okay. All right. (laughs) How about butt pirates? Don't worry, I, I, I'll keep those ones away. Butt pirates? I'll keep the butt pirates. Yeah, away. I'll 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 take one for the team, Mike, <laughs> and uh, I will I will handle them personally. Especially yeah. if it's Angel. Uh, oh wow! All right, just right out the gate, <laughs> David getting perverted over there. Okay, so today we're gonna be talking about season one, episode seven, Strange New Worlds, titled "The Serene Squall." The synapsis, while on a dangerous humanitarian mission, the crew of the USS Enterprise stumbles into a harrowing game of leverage with the Quadrant's deadliest space pirates. Directed by Sidney Freeland, written by Bo DeMeo and Sarah Tarkoff. Well, Dave, we don't need to play coy. They've done it. We've talked about it since Star Trek Discovery Season 1. The question we've posed since day one of the Kirkman era. When it was revealed that Michael Burnham would be related to Spock, we asked, how long will it be (laughs) before they bring Cybok into the equation? And here we are. And here we are. (laughs) Did you expect for it to happen in this series in season one? I just... Not in season one. We make a lot of jokes, Dave, but I really didn't think they would do it. Not in season one, Mike, because like... I'm sorry, that seemed like, okay, that'd be like way too much rushing. You know, you got to ease us in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got you to gotta lube up first before you go straight in. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't just like force this on us. Well, with the announcement of Strange New Worlds, we found ourselves facing the real possibility of Cyborg being used as a way to we help did. shape Spock's early years. We had talked about it the moment it was announced. We had said, well, we thought we might see it in Discovery. We didn't. But now here we are with Strange New Worlds. We, we have been saying, I can't remember if it was during our pre-shows that's available on Patreon if it was on, or if it was on our regular shows. Will it happen? And now here we are. And I feel like this is more than appropriate uh, because as it turns out, this series is exploring the intricacies of Spock's journey into self-discovery. Yes, These are the moments in his life when he's trying to figure out who he is, should be, and wants to be. And when you pay attention, you take all that, pay attention to what the writers are doing with Spock, a logical next step is to throw into the mix a chaotic element Mm -hmm. like Cybok. Oh, yeah, dude. When I... I was thinking that basically we would see maybe some allusions to Cyborg down the line when Spock is a bit, when we're more deep into Spock's story about being a, a basically a child of two worlds where they're, they're talking about his humanity versus his Vulcan side. And that's why I got really giddy when, you know, Dr. Aspen basically during that scene was talking about talking to Spock and, discussing about the whole adage of him dealing with his human side, his emotional side and his Vulcan logical side and talking about being like essentially being a child of two worlds. I was like going, okay, we could use this as a start point for that storyline, but not use Cybok yet till like season two when Spock is fully into it. Instead, 
we just like you said, we get Cybok right away, and now we get this sense. I got the sense, especially after this episode, that this is what kind of molds Spock into who he is. You know, now that we're seeing actually on screen this play out, it makes even more sense than we had been discussing. Because when you really analyze who Cybok is and was in Star Trek The Final Frontier, this is a perfect foil to challenge or pose questions concerning Spock's complicated identity Mm -hmm. and how he perceives himself and how he wants to be perceived by others. Mm-hmm. Well, dude, the, after I after I watched this episode, I immediately put on Star Trek: The Final Frontier. Like, I just started watching. I wa- I rewatched that, mm-hmm. and I just put it on while I was working. And basically, I look at that movie now differently because I always had this sense that Cyborg and the relationship between Cyborg and Spock is not really like a the the stereotypical villain hero type of relationship. Cybok to me has always been that that foil to Spock, especially now looking at it and seeing that you have one brother who is completely logical. And we know that Spock turns into that logical being, especially by the time he gets to Star Trek the Motion Picture, right? Meanwhile, we have his Ill- illegitimate brother who is the complete opposite. It's an interesting dichotomy. Especially when you rewatch that movie. I know people didn't like that movie, but now I look back at that movie and see that's actually a really important moment for Spock's relationships, not just with himself, but like actually looking at how young Spock was very broken. You know, like it isn't until he gets to meet Kirk and McCoy and creates a quote unquote family and discovers who he is and discovers who he is, who he wants to be. This is the moment in his life that he's still trying to figure Mm -hmm. who he is and how he identifies. Now, David, just to create a little bit of context here, there may be some new Star Trek listeners, listeners out there or Star Trek viewers out there who aren't entirely up on who Cybok is. Uh, Cybok is a character that was introduced in the 1989 Star Trek film, Star Trek The Final Frontier, which was the fifth Star Trek film for the original series, which, David, in my opinion, it's on record, I've said this many, many times, is a very flawed but equally underrated Star Trek film. It was a film that had a relatively simple plot, but had a great deal of of the philosophical sprinkled throughout Uh, and one such idea or rather possibly a question that was presented which i have always found incredibly interesting given the opportunity would you remove all the pain from your life or is there meaning and purpose to be derived from suffering does it for better or worse make us who we are to me, this has always felt like an offshoot of Nietzsche's thought experiment called eternal recurrence. It was used as such a beautiful way to create a moment for Spock in Star Trek The Final Frontier that really split or dissected, I should say, his character in a way that we really hadn't seen done. Now, we know that he's always struggled between his humanity and his Vulcan died. But it was made more tangible via the inclusion of a brother, which obviously is Cybok. Mm -hmm. Now, the scene in question has to be played. This is what Cybok (laughs) is about, and this will help you new listeners out there to uh, either remind themselves, or this may be new, it will show you what Cybok's ideology is is really about you know what i'm having audio issues here dave so talk for a moment well the thing that i'm glad that you're bringing this up is because i think that for the longest time the idea in star trek 4 that a lot of star trek fans didn't like was star trek 5 or star trek 5 was the fact that spock kept this secret to himself 
Like he wouldn't tell Kirk, he wouldn't tell McCoy and everyone constantly. I always remember Star Trek fans going, Spock would never do this. He never, he'd never keep that secret from Kirk and uh, Kirk and McCoy about his family. I'm like going, you guys do realize that Spock is a being of complete logic. And that's where I, I always said, people think it's a silly moment when Spock looks at Kirk in that movie and says, well, you never asked. <laughs> First off, Spock isn't what you would call an open book. He's not an open book. The guy isn't going to go around sharing personal details about his life. Exactly. So I never had a problem with this. I understand that Star Trek fans had a field day when this movie came out. Mm -hmm. And it, it was hated. It was panned, Mike. I remember that. But when uh, after watching it multiple times, because I, I'm a Star Trek fan and I love just rewatching every single movie, no matter, no matter how I feel, it might be bad. After a while, when I actually looked at Star Trek The Final Frontier, I was like going, this is actually a very powerful personal story that people aren't, aren't, really, aren't really paying attention to. They sacrifice plot for character. I feel like Star Trek V, if it was reviewed or analyzed through the perspective of Let's say you're, you're reviewing or analyzing Star Trek V as a character study, then it's a flawless film. If you're looking at it and trying to judge it based on traditional plot structure, then, then you're probably going to pan it. But mm -hmm. because it does have a very loose plot, yeah. it, that's the flawed aspect when you're looking at traditional ways of writing. But I don't feel like the inadequacies, let's call them, had anything to do with lack of talent or skill or a concise idea behind the film. I don't feel like people were adjusted to this idea, especially this coming idea. off of star Trek four, which was a bit of a satire. Yeah. Here's the audio I have. Now learn something about yourself. No, I refuse. Jim, try to be open about this. About what? I've made the wrong choices in my life. I turned left when I should have turned right. I know what my weaknesses are. I don't need Cyborg to take me on a tour of them. If you just unbend at all. And be brainwashed by this con man. I was wrong. This con man took away my pain. Damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with a wave of a magic wand. They're the things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Favorite, most favorite Kirk moment outside of Khan, dude. Without a doubt, David, it is one of the most underrated scenes in Star and all of Star Trek. When you listen to something like that and you watch it, I find it hard to believe that so many Star Trek fans to this day continue to shit on this movie. It's currently sitting at twenty two percent. Yes, on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, uh, and, Come on, and that's not fair because like. The when you think about it, especially that moment when Kirk says that in that movie, everyone just like pans it. Everyone basically overlooks it. But in actuality, Kirk is right. If you take away his pain, that means take away take away the tragedy of losing his son, losing his best friend, losing going back to even saying like the original series and and going back to. Um, the, the one episode that is considered the greatest Star Trek film of all time in uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Take away that pain of him watching a person he loves die, and he can't do anything. Take all of that away, and you don't have Captain Kirk. Well, that, that's why I had started this little bit here, this segment, with the idea that this is, that Star Trek V is closely associated with Friedrich Nietzsche's thought experiment, eternal recurrence, which is about living through your pain, living through your pain over and over and over and over. I was very young when this movie came out, but I still remember the controversy surrounding the cyborg character. People didn't like the alleged disruption of continuity. I can't remember what it was called, but there was some Star Trek fanzine that my mom bought for me regularly, and it had all the latest Trek news, interviews, gossip, almost like a modern-day uh, 
geek blog. Yes. But of course those things didn't exist in the early nineties, late eighties. But my point is, is that in the back of the magazine, there were letters from random fans. Yes. And I remember it was filled, just filled with final frontier criticism. And as we have said now numerous times, I do not feel like it's warranted. This film is way above a 22% yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not even going to give a percentage because I probably am going to plan a discussion review on this film and break it down and really get into the, the ins and outs of the movie. This episode, Dave, bringing it back to the show itself, strange new worlds, this episode being predominantly designed to explore Spock's internal conflict and the disharmony between the human and Vulcan sides and the insecurities that comes with that. It feels as I had said at the top of the show, more than appropriate to use a character like Cybok in this series, mm -hmm. as I'm sure this is just the beginning of a much larger story arc. And perhaps at the end of this, Dave, it'll create a greater appreciation for a movie that has always gone underneath the radar. Yes, I think so. Because like, especially nowadays, since... Since the advent of Discovery and then further further building on the mythos of Spock as a young young character and then throwing in things like Burnham as his sister, now Cybok as his illegitimate half-brother, it makes more sense why Spock turns out the way he does and why it takes that relationship with him and Kirk and, and McCoy to really make him a perfect quote unquote being. I like that you said that Dave, cause I'm, I agree with you 100% because it strengthens that mythos. Yes. And it also strengthens a lot of the things we know about Spock. It helps us or nudges the audience to look at things possibly from a different perspective. Different perspective. And then there are those moments where we, go, aha, that makes a lot more sense. And I feel the same way when it comes to the, the idea that the producers had that so many people shit on, which is Burnham being the sister of Spock. There were a lot of fans who still say and did say during season two of Discovery that they're going to, going to dilute the importance of of Kirk and McCoy and the relationship that played a big part or that and the fact that that relationship between yeah. those two individuals played such a big part in the shaping of Spock. I disagree. I don't think it dilutes it. If anything, it reaffirms and strengthens, strengthens it, that relationship because Spock made that choice as a young person to keep every single detail of him to himself. And in a way, in a way, Mike, that makes sense. Yes. I mean, logically, yeah. logically, Spock, just like what you said, as a logical person, you're not going to go out there and and just spill out your life to everybody that you see. Right. You're just not. And that's it, it brings it to parallel that moment in, in Final Frontier when <laughs> Kirk gets so angry at Spock and so, tells him, why didn't you tell me you had a brother? And he seems offended. And Spock's only answer and now looking at it makes so much sense for that character. Is Spock like going, well, you, you never asked. Logically, Spock is a logical being. That makes complete sense. No one ever asked him about his, his patronage or family, especially if, hey, do you have a sister? No, you're not going to ask that with Spock. You're not going to, you're not because the uh, Spock as a character is a person that lives in the now because that's what logic dictates. Yeah, the, the Burnham stuff from Discovery Season 2 and the part that that aspect still plays in Spock's storyline as we have seen in this season of Star Trek. Uh, then, of course, hopefully with the introduction of Cybok. And if they do this properly, which so far so good, if anything, this helps solidify the fact that Kirk and McCoy were very important parts in Spock's life because it wasn't until he met them that he felt confident in who he was yes. as a person. At this time, he's, he's insecure. He's not sure who he should be. He's not sure who he wants to be. That's why Star Trek, the final frontier seamlessly works very well into what we're seeing 
the writers do on Strange New Worlds. Yeah. It was heavily implied in Final Frontier that Cybok had tried to convince Spock before to reject the parochial teachings, you know, of Vulcan, Vulcan logic, logic and embrace emotions. And this is why the use of Angel as the pirate captain and her connection to Cybok was so interesting because we can assume she was aware of who Spock was yes. and was essentially undermining Spock's path to logic by filling his head with ideology <laughs> yes. born of Cybok's teachings. I, and I, I hit myself in the head, Mike, after I watched the episode because I was like, why didn't I see this? Because like, it'd be one thing if, if Angel was just basically being antagonistic to Spock. But when you actually take a step back, the way she approaches Spock is the same way his relationship with Cybok is. It's not an antagonistic role. It's two people on two different sides of the spectrum. Presenting a different presenting view. Presenting a different view. It, that's not to say that Spock, you know, I think a lot of people have this mis, uh, misinterpretation of Spock and Cybok's relationship where they hate each other. They don't hate each other. They're still brothers. But they just, oh, they just are from two different points of view, or opposing points of view, even. And that's where it gets complicated. If you want to learn more about the Vulcan culture, one of the best Star Trek series to watch is Enterprise. Yeah, because Enterprise dissects the prejudice of the Vulcan culture. Yes. Now that prejudice comes with a, a lot of complications. And baggage. We understand for those people out there who may not be aware, the Vulcans do have emotions. I, I feel like that's a misconception. A lot of people think they don't have emotions. But they do. They have emotions, but they work their damnedest to purge them or suppress them because in order for their culture to, to live in peace, they realize that they have to do that because they're a highly emotional species. It's actually the opposite. They're so passionate and emotional that it had created massive problems within their culture. So their solution was to suppress their yes. emotions and use logic as a way to guide their ideological practices for their culture. And I think that that's, a, that's something that a lot of fans misinterpret about Star Trek and, and the Vulcan Vulcan history is they say, oh, they just, they just, you know, ignore their emotions. No, they have rituals that they have to undergo to remove or suppress within themselves their emotional state. I mean, me and you just saw just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the motion picture. One of the biggest things. The 4K yeah. restoration on the, 4K the big screen restoration. was amazing. And like one of the major elements of that movie is Spock undergoing the whole ritual of suppressing his emotions. The colonar. The colonar. Yeah. And it's an important ritual for all Vulcans everywhere. Yeah. And then it's a big deal that he basically stops it. He He, he suddenly just... During that whole thing says, no, I, this is not what I was looking for. Right. Well, and Dave, that's an interesting point that you make because that obviously I feel like a bit of this episode was foreshadowing that decision in the motion picture when Angel or let's call her Dr. Aspen, I guess. Dr. Aspen. Even when she even went as far as questioning Spock on his quest to purge all emotions because the idea of the colonar was brought up in yes. this episode. Dude, I was so giddy when he brought, when they brought it up. It felt like they were foreshadowing things to come because as you mentioned, the purging of emotions or the colonar as the Vulcans call it does in fact play a big part in Spock's story in mm -hmm. Star Trek, the motion picture in fact, there's an article from Screen Rant that perfectly summarizes this aspect better than I can word it. So I'm just going to read it verbatim. In Star Trek, the motion picture, Spock left Starfleet in order to undergo the colonar, which is the purging of all emotions. Spock was at the final point of the colonar ritual when he sensed V'ger, the artificial intelligence en route to Earth to find its creator. Spock later confessed to Admiral James T. Kirk that he felt a bond to V'ger 
as a fellow sentient being who questioned his very Exist. existence. Yes. Spock even wept for V'ger like a brother. It was because of the connection Spock felt to V'ger that he failed the Kalinar. Yes. Spock ultimately learned that ridding himself of all emotion would have been a mistake and he never attempted the Kalinar again. And Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, Spock attempted to convey the sum of his wisdom to his protege that was played by Kim Cattrall. Yes. That logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. Uh, the half-human Spock had come to reconcile his humanity and knew that devoting himself to a purely logical existence would have been a grave error. Yeah. I love that the Strange New World's writers are taking everything with that we know as Spock and essentially just laying down the groundwork to get to that point. And this is what I was hoping they were going to do. When you're dealing with characters like this, these are legacy characters. I'm not one for fan service, Dave. Yeah. I know there are a lot of fans of different fandoms who that's kind of like all they seem to want is fan service things. I'm not for that. And don't get me wrong. I'm a Star Trek geek at heart. I'd be lying if I were to say I don't like fan service. But the, the, the academic, the critic in me always pushes back on simply fan service unless it has substance that comes with it. And when you introduce a new version of Spock like they're doing here, they have to be very careful with how they flesh out certain ideas. And so far, these writers are taking things that we know as Spock and simply recontextualizing, not changing, recontextualizing so that we get a slightly different perspective mm -hmm. and we get a peek of things to come. Yes. And you know what would be amazing? Now that they've opened Pandora's box, in my opinion, about Cyborg. With the story of Cyborg, it'd be really cool for them to jump into the opposite side of the spectrum. Yeah. While Spock is dealing with being a, a, a being of complete logic and fighting this urge of emotions and coming to the terms in his story that emotions, you can't purge all emotion. It'd be cool to all of a sudden you just you parallel that with Cyborg's story where it's like you can embrace all your emotions, but you can't let go of your logic. Because if you look at especially after I watched um, the final uh, the final frontier with with the story of Cyborg and Spock, the problem with Cyborg was he embraced all all emotion, but he purged himself of logic, and that left him to be manipulated by. Uh, the almighty being of Shakari. I think the idea behind the two is that when you, when you look at Cybok and Spock as parallels and the fact that they are on complete opposite sides of a spectrum, I think the message here is that you need balance. You need balance. I think that's the point, and, right? And the, the only cheesy part that I, I, I think that I don't want them to say, Mike, is the fact that Spock is Spock right now, currently, is not the perfect balance. Cybok is not the perfect balance. But Burnham. Oh, come on. <laughs> Burnham's the perfect balance. We Burnham know balance. she's not. And she's yes, highly emotional. I don't want I don't want them to say that. Yeah. That's the only thing. Hey, they are not going to. Come on. But overall, I'm really liking how the Strange New World's writers are paying close attention to the details. It all feels very seamless and consistent. In the motion picture, uh, director Robert Wise, as well as the writer Alan Dean Foster, Alan which, Dean Foster. which, by the way, is amazing that he wrote that film. <laughs> Not many people realize that, right. dude. Alan Dean Foster, one of the greatest sci-fi writers. Motion picture also. Yes. Extremely underrated. That film is sitting at is such a fucking farce. I hate humanity. A 49%. I hate humanity, Mike. I hate humanity. <laughs> it's just not. It's not right. It's not accurate. It's not, it's I'm not sorry, fair. but 49% isn't fucking accurate. No, it's not. Um, we're digressing again here, but the writer, Alan Dean Foster, as well as the director, Robert Wise, were set on creating a type of existential crisis for Spock. Mm -hmm. That was the beautiful thing about the Colinar scene. It was ca it caused him to question who he was. 
And that's exactly the type of consistency we are getting in Strange New Worlds. Connecting dots and smoothing out story elements from decades ago. Yes. That's what they're doing. So taking those elements that Robert Wise and Alan Dean Foster had had used way back in what 1979 I believe is when the motion picture was released yeah and we have the strange new worlds writers taking these aspects and using them to help create the thematic aspects used in the episode uh, to create the plot itself the story um, you have Chapel and Spock's relationship as friends it's going to become more and more complicated after this episode. Yeah. You have that kiss between the two of them, though it was meant to deceive the pirate captain. And it ended up proving to chapel that she does in fact have deep feelings for for Spock. Spock. And it rattled Spock too. That was also clear because at that moment, he also realized there's something happening between the two of them. Yes. And that works yet again with who Spock wants to be, how he perceives himself to be, and how he wants to be perceived, which is someone who is obligated to duty and responsibility. And for him to have feelings or admit that he has feelings for someone who he is not betrothed to goes against who he wants to be. be. Also because he clings to his Vulcan side to take on a relationship with say a human would also go against how he wants to be perceived. So all of these elements are working in tandem to create this beautiful, complicated picture, a character study essentially of Spock. So when you look at it from that perspective, this episode was exceptional from numerous aspects Uh, the writers use a lot of that stuff from chapel and spock perfectly to show the audience the emotions it stirred up which will further complicate spock's perception of himself his identity and the expectations he places on himself yeah it's really hard to complain about an episode like this it served as i as i said as an excellent character study there was also some slightly sad moments Knowing that T'Pring and Spock are not meant to be. That's not a spoiler. The more we get with T'Pring, the more her edges are softened. Because in the original series, she was just unlikable. (laughs) Yes. You were like, good. See you later. (laughs) How dare you try to cheat on Spock? She's unlikable because because we like Spock. And you give us this episode where she essentially admits that she does doesn't want anything to do do with with him him. that he's too human for her and that she'd rather have a pure-blooded vulcan as her husband yeah which says a lot about their culture as well as as to pring as to pring and i always viewed her as as unlikable and i remember when they announced that to pring would play a big part in strange new worlds i had said well she's an unlikable character so i don't give a fuck but as the season progresses Again, recontextualizing things. We now see other perspectives and she is a lot more likable. Yes. Because they're softening those edges and it does make you go back and look at the episode Amit Time from the original series very differently. Yes. Story B was mostly designed for levity and it worked. After this episode, David... It's probably, tell me if you disagree, it's probably safe to say that Captain Pike is far more playful than (laughs) any of our other captains. Yes, yes, and yes. I like this because it creates a distinction. It does. It also justifies the type of rapport he has with his crew. Yeah. Which is a little more casual. A little more casual, and it's almost... It's not discovery casual where there's no leadership no. or hierarchy or, and everyone disobeys each other. It's very different than saying like with Kirk and his crew, especially, yes, he's close with the core crew. But in actuality, Kirk is kind of like, you know, the standing captain. He's the military captain, right? 
with... But he was also straight-faced. He was straight-faced. You get Picard, who, who is, is totally like an admiral. He's, he's right. He's totally military, totally by the book. And everyone puts Picard on Enterprise on a pedestal. Like you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to hang out with Captain Picard because that's weird because he's the captain. <laughs> there was a clear hierarchy. There's a clear hierarchy. On Enterprise, what, D? Yes. Yes. With and Picard. With, you know, we've gone through the whole breakdown of each captain. Pike is turning into just kind of like what you, uh, like you alluded to. He's more, he looks at all his crew members as just as important as him. And he's more playful. And I he's think, more playful. I think that's the clear distinction because all of our captains are always going to have some similarities when it comes to duty and responsibility. I mean, that's always going to be pretty similar from captain to captain. You're captain not going to, we're not going to have a TV show we, where we have a complete inept captain. Thanks. <laughs> and, unless go ahead and say it. Except Archer. <laughs> oh, he wasn't inept. He was just very naive and, si- and silly at times. What they're doing with Pike is they're giving him his own character, his his own character traits that are unique to him, which is the playful side. But also tying it to his relationship with his crew. I mean, dude, that that scene when he he's doing all the pirate things and Una tells him to stop. Yeah, she just says, please stop. <laughs> please stop. Doesn't even turn around. And just says, please stop. And she has a slight little smile on her, on her face. And I love moments like that because it really it stresses to the audience that they have a very long history together and that that she has become accustomed to Pike's weirdness, childish (laughs) jokes, (laughs) you know, because David, you know, if I was a captain, I would do the exact same thing. I'd be doing, Oh, pirates are, I love the interplay between Pike and Una. Uh, It's written in such a way that it really brings out, the close relationship the two of them obviously have, for example, that Boy Scout moment when Dr. Aspen says Starfleet calls you a Boy Scout and Pike's all, no, no, they don't. Like, <laughs> I look slightly embarrassed. Yeah. And then Una's all, it's actually in your file. It's actually in your file. And it's like that, those moments good. are really cool. Yeah. And I, okay, this might be, this might be jumping the gun, Mike, but I'm sorry. Up to this point, I've always felt I would love to be, you know, with Captain Picard on the Enterprise because I know I'm going to. When you say with Picard, you mean like you know, with him? No, no, not oh, with oh, oh, him. Okay, okay. But like one of the crew of the that Enterprise, right? Yeah. I've always wanted to do that because Picard just seems to be the perfect teacher. He's not fun, though. But he's not fun. No. At this point, I'm going to say my favorite captain, just personally, mm-hmm. has to be Pike. He likes 1950s schlocky sci-fi films he doesn't he basically doesn't really take it serious take a lot of things seriously he takes his duty he respons- takes his, uh, his, but he, he takes, takes his, his he takes his duty and responsibility as a starfleet captain serious serious but when it comes to basically personally working with him, his personal interactions, his personal interactions, no, he's a totally laid back captain. Yeah. And then you get this moment. Oh my God. When he starts acting as a pirate, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try to act like pirates. This is the, the enterprise I would like to serve. Yes. Because I would like to serve under this. Not enterprise. only is he fun, but also he knows how to pick a crew. <laughs> Chapel, Una, Leanne, Uhura. Uhura. I mean, that's just, I mean, Spock. <laughs> it's just too much hotness. There's too much hotness on the on bridge. That, on that but, bridge. But, but I would gladly sit on that navigation console and, and be the ugly, the ugly duckling <laughs> of the group. The ugly du- <laughs> as long as I'm surrounded by beauty, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> that is, <laughs> Makes me feel better about myself. Well, because your hotness goes up exponentially by the people around you. Well, okay. So if you're surrounded by tens and you're like, let's say I'm a three. I go up. You go to a six. No, no, no. Like a four and a half. Four and a half, five. Just by default, by being around tens. And I need every, every chance I can get. I need every, <laughs> need every chance you can get. I need all the help I can get. So if I can go up, you know, a point and a half, 
but I'll take it. Well, also you gotta throw in the fact that maybe you could get a sympathy betting. Oh, what that's about right. Tens. I mean, I'd be like going, okay, if I can at least bet one of the tens. Oh wow. Then I go up from like what you said, a four to five to maybe a six. That sounds very because, sexist and masculine. <laughs> because people will look at me and go, oh my god, do you know that he had sex with so and so? He must be awesome in bed. Then your level goes up a bit. <laughs> I would battle um, Bach for. <laughs> Chapel. Chapel. I'm like, you don't appreciate her. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> it's so fucking childish and stupid. So overall, the episode was, I, I think, a very good addition to the season. The, the showrunner for Strange New Worlds has managed in just seven episodes to create a fascinating backdrop. Uh, there are a lot of things on Simmer. The writer's are going to be able to use these things, obviously, for future episodes. This is how you write television. Yeah. Don't always bring a, a finite closure to every episode. When it comes to the, the immediate narrative, the story of that episode, yes, bring that to an end. But when it comes to setting things up, if you want your show to have life and anticipated life, as the seasons go by, then you have to set these things up. And now we have so much already set up in the background. And, and now we have the introduction of Cybok. I really hope they use this aspect in a much bigger way. Yeah. Perhaps creating a, a several episode arc that serves as an emotional myth arc of sorts. Something. Oh, yeah. I can definitely see them doing it. Obviously, it's safe to say that they're not going to introduce Cybok right away at the last, well, during the last 30 seconds of an episode, they didn't never go back to him. They're obviously setting something bigger up that we'll get to eventually, perhaps not this season. We only have roughly what, two episodes, three episodes left this season. So they could, yeah. they could almost do it as a season finale type two parter that bleeds into the season two premiere, like the old days of Trek, like the, the Berman era of TNG and the uh, East space nine Voyager timeframe. Oh yeah. So we'll see what happens. The pirate captain, uh, angel angel is an interesting new element played by Jesse, Jesse James Keitel, which I want to say they are, or she is three times removed from the actor. Harvey Keitel. So she is related. I want to say it's his cousin. I want to say, but this actor has been around for quite some time. I'm actually currently watching a show where she's the lead mm -hmm. uh, called big sky, big sky that is on ABC. It's a, it's a network television show, but it's, it's good for a network television show. So I was aware of what this actor can do. So when they announced that, um, that Kaitel would be in this episode. I was looking forward to it because she's got some great range. Oh, she does. And I, I honestly feel I was so happy that angel got away because that means that she'll come back. She there, there's that opportunity that we might see that character. She, again. She's definitely coming back because like, it's one of those things that I, me and you have discussed on past shows is like many shows kill off their villains and then you're like left going, man, I, I really wish they didn't kill them off because you could have brought them back. This is their opportunity to create a villain of sorts that is specific to this series. Every series needs that villain. And it's something we've talked about, David, with Star Trek Discovery. My biggest problem with Star Trek Discovery is that they still have not introduced an iconic villain yet. Yes. Every series in Star Trek has had that iconic villain. Discovery is the only series so far that hasn't introduced their own iconic, iconic villain. villain. And if Strange New Worlds can do that with, say, someone like Captain Angel, who you know, we've barely scraped yeah, the tip of the iceberg for their character. And now you have this character connected to Cybok. Uh, they're in a relationship of sorts. I'm hoping they continue with this storyline. I hope so too, because like, I think that the character of angel could easily be kind of like strange new worlds version of Harry mud, that type of character that keeps showing up. 
that keeps coming back and we keep waiting in anticipation. How is the, how is the crew of the enterprise going to thwart this villain? You know, because the one thing that basically I've stated before about discovery, they come up with some great villains, but then they write them off and then suddenly you have to come up with a brand new villain. And they did it even at their last, the last uh, season of Discovery when they created the one doctor the, in the very end that was paired up with Book. As well as Unknown Species 10C. 10C. They had two possibilities there. And they just basically wrote them out <laughs> because they were, they were like, going, nah, we'll come up with a different villain. I want to see Star Trek return to the idea of bringing back like these villains that could be reoccurring roles. Mm-hmm. The best Star Trek that ever, the best Star Trek series that ever did it was Deep Space Nine. In literature, Dave, there's a common saying. When it comes to certain types of stories that involve an antagonistical force, a protagonist is only as good as their villain. Yes. That's why Captain Kirk pops in his era because of his animosity towards the Klingons. Klingons. The reason why Picard's story really didn't take root until he was assimilated by the Borg. Mm-hmm. It's why Archer didn't become interesting until the Zendi. It is why Voyager didn't fully find itself until the introduction of Seven of Nine, which created more of uh, an element of self-discovery. And introduced the Borg in a very different way than TNG. Yes. They use them differently. I mean, I can go on and on. D Space Nine and, of course, the Dominion. That show really didn't find itself until they created a consistent or cohesive villain out of the Dominion and mm-hmm. the founders. And then, of course, Gal Dukat. Gal Dukat. And yep. the part he played in all of that mess. That is why... Shows like Star Trek need that because a lot of the narrative cues or story cues used to create some of the best Star Trek stories in history are moments taken from, or I should say, inspirational cues taken from Shakespeare. Shakespeare is heavy on a type of melodrama. In order to create that, you got to have those types of characters. Yes. Discovery hasn't done it. Mm-mm. Strange New Worlds can do it. And I have a feeling that if they do this properly, Cybok and Captain Angel can be that. Mm-hmm. You can make the pirates themselves their version of that faction that basically constantly comes back for the Enterprise. Yeah. All right. So this does bring us to the end of our discussion I don't really have much more to say in the way of final thoughts other than the fact that I felt like this episode was strong. It wasn't the strongest overall of all the episodes today. I'd probably say it might be the weakest, which is. Yeah, I agree with you with that one, which isn't a negative Mm -mm. because the Spock stuff. If the entire episode was the Spock stuff, then it probably would have been 100 percent. But story B. Though it brought levity, there were a lot of assumptions <laughs> just being made. Yes. The pirate crew are bumbling idiots that they can easily be manipulated Manipula- <laughs> to create a mutiny. Oh, but come, on, come on, Mike. If you had Captain Pike, if you met Captain Pike and he tried to actually coerce you to become on his side, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go to Captain Pike's side? Yeah, but that's not what he was doing. He was trying to manipulate people in a very juvenile way <laughs> that I, I find it hard to believe anyone would fall victim to such an obvious manipulative tactic. That stuff I struggled with. It wasn't horrible because it was so... I'm a little divided on that, Dave, because the... The average viewer in me is like it worked. You know, it brought a a level of levity that needed to be there. It brought back a bit of a campy slapstick vibe that's a part of this era. Let's just be honest. The yeah, original series. The original series. So I did like it. But as a reviewer and breaking down <laughs> the script, there were some issues with yes. story B. Yes. So 
with that being said, I'm going to give this episode an 86% on the RMD score. Okay. Yeah. I'm not far off because you hit it on the head. Some of the stuff, I mean, the Spock stuff just left me so giddy. It was perfect. It dude. was perfect. I mean, the only thing I think you could have done more is make more illusions that we as the audience and Star Trek fans could come to that conclusion naturally that Spock did that basically when he deduced that the person that basically he captain angel was referring to wasn't, wasn't someone that they were originally referring to. Mm -hmm. It was his brother. Right. If they did a little bit more of that, I, I I'm like you, I think there would have been a hundred percent, but then you throw in the cat, the, 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 the campiness of the B uh, subplot line and the strength of that one was solely just enjoying Anson Mount's performance as Captain Pike. Yeah, and it's hard to hate on that. And it's hard to hate on it's him. It's hard to hate on the great interplay between Pike and Pike his and, crew. Pike and his crew. It, it, it's, that's why I'm so divided and conflicted. And that's why I'm, I'm very close to your score. I know you gave it an 86. I gave this one an 88. Okay. I know it's not. I know it's not perfect, but I still really enjoyed my time with the episode. David, this isn't a bad percentage. Eighty six no. and eighty eight, still solid. Is just not. We the last episode we graded was. Oh my god, ninety eight percent. Ninety eight percent. Yeah, because that was a really good episode, just critically. Yeah. All right. So just as a quick reminder, we do have a Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com slash Digital, you can pledge. You know, five dollars or more a month, and by doing so, you will gain access to an entire gamut of exclusive content dedicated to Star Trek. Talk about lots of different things. If you like this show that we do weekly, then you're simply getting more of what you like. So go to Patreon.com/slash Rainman Digital and pledge. It helps us stay on the air. We are an independent operation that does. Corporate level podcasting. I guess that's the best way of saying it. I think that's the best way. Yeah. Quality and content. We definitely compete with the big boys, but financially we don't. Yes. So we do need the help. That's why I urge everyone to go to patreon.com slash digital and pledge. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.